We Dig Plants. We're very happy to be here at Roberta's Pizza, 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We are broadcasting from two shipping containers via Heritage Radio Network, and we're happy to be part of the new family. Uh, This is a show which aims to cultivate the culture in horticulture and explain the human relationship to plants as food, medicine, fodder, and as a source of beauty and inspiration. I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And welcome to We Dig Plants. So a little bit about us. Uh, Groundworks Inc. is our company. We are a design-build landscaping company based in Brooklyn. We've been designing green spaces in New York collectively for over 20 years. We started our company in 2001 with about $700, and we've built gardens throughout the tri-state area from the New Jersey suburbs to Park Avenue rooftops, West Village green roofs, Westchester Estates, and Brownstone Brooklyn backyards. So as a way of introduction, we thought we would interview each other so that you, the listener, can hear a bit about our backgrounds. Uh, Briefly, we were both trained at New York Botanic Garden professionally after college, and we both come from uh, family farming backgrounds. Carmen is from Naples. She was born there and then immigrated uh, with her parents to New York City, where um, the family farm was transported from Italy to a Brooklyn backyard, and the idea of a self-sufficient farming lifestyle was the reward for hard work. And Alice, my friend and partner, uh, her family comes from western Tennessee and Michigan. Her grandfather was a sharecropper growing cotton in Tennessee, and the idea of self-sufficiency was also found in growing your own food as you move up the social ladder, take risks, and climb out of sharecropping dependency. And I'd like to ask you a couple of questions, Alice, so the audience gets to know you a little bit better. All righty. Um, The first question that I have is, how did you end up in New York City and on the gardening path? Well, I was, like many other young ladies, an art history studio gallery girl in Soho in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, And I soon realized that I missed gardening. It's funny because I never really thought of it as a profession until I moved here and I thought, oh my God, what's wrong with this place? There's no green, and I wanted to be barefoot. So I began to collect plants like a nut, and I drove my apartment roommates crazy. My houseplant collection became a studio of sorts and allowed me to be able to create something. So classes at the New York Botanic Garden led to working with some New York City designers. I learned to estimate, um, contract, procure plants, visit nurseries, install gardens, I was messy, dirty, and satisfied, just like how it feels to finish a painting. So freelance work for designers merged into a full-time job at the Horticultural Society of New York, where I had an amazing boss that allowed me to run a program in partnership with the New York City Department of Design and Construction, New York City Library Systems, and New York City Botanical Gardens to design gardens in a variety of different neighborhoods from, um, you know, Upper East Side to Bushwick to uh, the South Bronx, mm-hmm. and I was exposed to a lot of different people and environments. Okay, so your trajectory was from art history to garden making. Can you go a little bit more into depth? Yeah, um, I think the thing that I liked best about making gardens was that it gave me a sense of purpose, which is actually what art history is. It was a way that the painter would kind of 
put himself in context. So it was a way of claiming identity and making a sense of space. So horticulture in New York in New York, as you know, is a unique niche industry. And I wasn't interested in becoming another MFA person looking for a job. Right. I loved being outdoors and, and making things. And I love the process of chaos and then cultivation. Okay, so you've been doing this for a while now. Who inspires you now? Who are your gardening heroes? Um, I think my most favorite designer right now is Pierre Odoff. Um, I love the large meadow idea and natives, and I love the new wave planting movement. It's kind of a merging of space and place and horticulture. Um, it's an elegant and a quiet approach. It can be loud, of course, with, with color, but in design, it's a subtle movement, um, as if you just, almost like as if you've just stumbled across a sketch or a drawing of some fantastic place that God is sketching or, or working on. It seems ripe with possibilities. That sounds great. So, Miss Carmen, a few questions for you. All right. Uh, um, your first gardening experience. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, um, I was not that interested in gardening as a child or as a teen, although my parents cultivated many productive gardens throughout their lives. Um, I come from many generations of farmers, as you know, but only when I became an adult and had a small outdoor garden of my own did I begin to fall in love with plants and with gardening. In fact, one of my earliest memories is growing tomatoes from seed in my mostly shady backyard garden in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Tomatoes from seed. That's very difficult. <laughs> and very unsuccessful in the shade. <laughs> I always just went for the plant instead of the seed. <laughs> I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> so, okay, um... Explain your Italian heritage then and gardening in Brooklyn. Okay. Well, my parents and my extended family were obsessed with growing fresh food and eating well. We did not even go out to eat much during my childhood and early adulthood. In fact, the only meals that we really ate outside our home were at weddings and other big family events. <laughs> uh, my family grew everything from grapes to peaches, figs, lettuces, and herbs, and of course, the ubiquitous tomato in their tiny plots in Brooklyn. They all came from the rural agrarian background, and as soon as they had a plot to call their own, they filled it to bursting with things to eat. That left very little space for the ornamental, which is my first love. And it's they were just mostly interested in what was useful and productive, and they grew things for taste and even forage for wild greens when they could. So my childhood was filled not with trips to Disney World, but with trips to upstate farms and orchards to pick and load up on apples, cherries, and potatoes. All right. So if you could design a garden, uh, where would it be located and what would it be comprised of? What's your ideal garden? Well, um... Over the years, I've given a lot of thought to this and have fantasized a lot um, and created a lot of gardens for other people. Um, my ideal garden is probably a series of connected garden rooms that would maintain themselves in an almost effortless manner and be located on an island in the Mediterranean. It would have been designed in the late 19th century by an Englishman, then left to ruin for several decades after his death then uncovered and restored by me and local artisans into a 21st century self-sustaining organic farm and artist colony. So why would it be an Englishman and not an a, uh, Italian? Well, um, I think I've watched too many Merchant Ivory productions. <laughs> okay. All right, really quickly. Um, 
before we go to break, we just wanted to talk about what we envision the show to be. Um, we invite you all to join us um, each week. Before next week's show, we will give you the topic. We ask you to join us on our fan book, uh, our, our fan page of Facebook, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants, and help us create um, shows that are multi-layered and um, eclectic. So we're going to go to break now. And before we go to break, I'd like to introduce a song which is based on the fig, which Carmen will be talking about, and it's called Fig Leaf by Carbonate by M.F. Doom. How in the world does that old fella eat all of that crazy stuff and not get sick to his stomach? <laughs> well, don't worry about that. You see, whenever I make a pig of myself on the fillet or the pudding or something, I mix up some herbs and I come up with a dandy glass of this bicarbonate of fig leaf. That'll set me free, I'll tell you. Uh. Edible wrappers may be in grocery stores. A serious monster now. You've heard of good to the last drop? Well, your food could soon be good to the last bite. Hi, and we are back. Uh, You're listening to We Dig Plants, sponsored by Hearst Ranch. And um, Carmen's going to talk about the fig. And we just heard Fig Leaf by Carbonate from MF Doom. Um, We're going to talk about the fig because Carmen is Italian. It's the most exotic sweet fruit you could ever find. And uh, take it away, Carmen. Thank you, Alice. Um, The fig. Now, I want to ask you, have you ever seen some strangely wrapped sculptures in people's gardens in different parts of New York City? Yeah, what is that? They're often wrapped in plastic and topped with a five-gallon bucket for a hat. Monster. Yeah. Well, they're probably a fig tree that someone is trying to protect from our long northern winter. But who gives a fig? Why go, <laughs> why go to all the trouble? What Forget is a fig? It. Forget about it. Well, um, the fig, the edible fig that we all know is so delicious, is called Ficus carica. That's its Latin name. It's in the Morassiae or mulberry family. And actually, the edible part is not a fruit at all, but something called a synconium, or a case that contains hundreds of flowers that, if pollinated, produce tiny bubbles of fruit material that's sweet, crunchy stuff that you bite into Mm. when you bite a fruit, a fig. Now, wild fig trees are symbiotic. That means that they cannot survive to reproduce without the assistance of another creature, in this case, the fig wasp. And the fig wasp, in turn, cannot also never survive without the food and shelter provided by the fig. So let me try to explain this without any diagrams or charts. (laughs) Um, At the proper time, the female wasp enters the opening in the synconium, the bottom of the the sort of rounded part of the fruit. This is getting sexy. I know. I know. I'm going to try to keep it, you know, PG. And it attempts to inject its eggs into the flowers. Now, if they are injected into the hermaphroditic flowers, 
new wasps develop and feed on the developing fruit. The female wasps get fertilized by the male wasps. Then the females gnaw through the synconium, dusting their body with pollen on their way to another synconium to deposit their eggs, dust off their pollen, and die. Who knew? Yeah, that's their life cycle. So, if the wasp larvae are eating all of the fruit, how are we getting any, and how is the tree producing any viable seed? Here's how that works. Some of the synconiums are female, and their flowers are too long for the wasps to inject their eggs into. So the tree gets pollinated without having to give up on producing any viable fruits and seeds, getting the wasp services without the wasp getting anything. But who wants to eat a fig filled with wasp larvae? <laughs> Not I, said the fly. Yeah. So thankfully, somewhere along the way, a mutation of the fig tree happened that produced a tree that does not require pollination to bear fruit. Sort of like a, an accident of nature. The catch is that this kind of tree is sterile. No pollination, no viable seed. So enter the fig tree's new symbiote, the human, which, like the wasp, discovered just how tasty that synconium was. So the fig tree easily reproduces from cuttings. That is, stick a fig branch in the dirt, tend to it, and you'll get another fig tree with delicious embryo-free fruit. And that's how we've developed a relationship with a fig. How long has that been going on? How long have humans been symbiotic with figs? Well, some of the archaeological evidence suggests that there have been domesticated figs from as early as 11,000 years ago. And that was probably the age of the dried figs that my grandmother, God rest <laughs> her soul, used to give me for Christmas. <laughs> the ubiquitous fruitcake. Yeah, the Italian version. <laughs> um, but ancient humans were obsessed with the fig tree. According to the California Fig Advisory Board, which I assure you I'm not making up, the fig tree figures in the founding of great cultures and religions. For example, Romulus and Remus, founders of Rome, were, according to legend, suckled under a fig tree by a she-wolf. The Buddha had revelations that formed the foundations of Buddhism under a fig tree. The fig tree is mentioned frequently in the Bible, as you can imagine, and was, of course, included in the Garden of Eden. Um, one example from the Bible that I like is from the New Testament's book of Mark. Before entering Jerusalem, Jesus curses the fig tree for having no fruit. Read into, read into it what you will, but he apparently wasn't there at the time that the tree would have been bearing fruit. <laughs> I don't know why he wouldn't have known that. <laughs> um, His anyway. father should have told him. Exactly. Um, anyway... So from those kinds of, from that history, a lot of people assume that the fig tree comes from the Mediterranean or the Middle East, but that's not true. Um, apparently, it comes from Western Asia or Asia Minor, and it was probably first cultivated as an edible crop in the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia. You remember that from fifth grade social studies. Mesopotamia. Tigris yep. and Euphrates. <laughs> um, so the Greeks and the Phoenicians spread the fig throughout their Mediterranean colonies. Once it was introduced, it became an important part of diet for rich and poor, and also a valu valuable commodity. The term sycophant, from sike or fig eater, has its origins in ancient Greece. When members of the, uh, of, the ancient, of the ancient Athenians informed the authorities of illegally exporting figs from Attica, the word assumed its modern meaning, which was someone who was a flatterer um, of someone rich and powerful. So basically like a brown noser. Yeah, a figgy brown noser. <laughs> um, so spreading the fig throughout the known world. Um, from Greece, the fig culture went and spread to southern Italy 
And in fact, at the time of Pliny, uh, distinct cultivars are mentioned. So they were developing new kinds of figs, you know, thousands of years ago already. Mm-hmm. Now, 17 year, seven, about 1,700 years later, after the Phoenician colonization, the Arabic conquest retraced their route and carried the fig in many new forms and raised fig culture to a whole new degree of importance. These figs were vastly superior to those of the Greek and Roman colonies and dominated the European markets into the 19th century. These were known as Capra figs and are still in cultivation today in parts of Portugal and Malta. So is that the fig that the Romans wear to cover their private parts? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I think the popes put it on the statues. The I'm, Romans, yeah. yeah I'm just it. asking. <laughs> okay. Um, so... How did we get uh, from Europe into the New World? Where, how did the fig end up here? Um, the Spanish and the Portuguese missionaries brought figs to the New World. As, and in fact, as early as 1626, figs were growing in what is now Cuba. Then as now, there was market protection, as there are many commodities. And each family in Cuba was only allowed one fig tree to avoid competition with the mother country. Mm. And then from the West Indies, the fig spread to both coasts of the United States, where they were quickly adopted by the local population. Mm-hmm. So um, coming full circle um, and wanting to grow a fig, um, my recommendation is buy a fig tree from a reputable nursery that specializes in fruit trees, making sure you get one that's hardy for your USDA zone. In the New York City area, we're in zone 7. Um, and if you want to, and you have, and, and you're lucky enough to have a friend that has a fig tree, you can take a cutting from their tree. And within two or three years of planting that cutting, you could potentially have fruit, um, that you can pick of your own. Mm-hmm. Um, I of course like to eat them fresh right off the tree. And in fact, as a child in Italy, I used to, um, eat figs and bread for breakfast. Um, they don't keep very long in the fridge, maybe three to four days, so if you have an overabundance, you can cook with them. Uh, one of my favorite recipes that makes me feel like an ancient Roman is called Fresh Fig Clafuti. And we're going to post that recipe on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. Now I'd like to end by reading a poem that I think reflects uh, the fig and its symbolism. Um, it's by uh, Ambrose Bierce, and it goes like this. Um, youth is the true Saturnian reign, the golden age on earth again, when figs are grown on thistles and pigs betailed with whistles and wearing silken bristles live ever in clover and cows fly over delivering milk at every door and justice never is heard to snore and every assassin is made a ghost and howling is cast into ball to most. And now um, we're going to take a break. And during the break, we're going to listen to um, Milk Thistle by Connor Oberst. Thank you. Milk thistle, milk thistle Let me down slow Help me go slow I've been carrying on I'm not scared of nothing I'll go pound for pound I'll keep Death on my mind like a heavy crown If I go to heaven I'll be bored as hell Like a little baby at the bottom of a well 
Hi, welcome back to Heritage Radio Network. Um, this is We Dig Plants with Carmen DeVito and Alice Marcus Kreis. Uh, we're broadcasting from Roberta's, a ship, two shipping containers outside Roberta's restaurant at 261 Moore Avenue in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we're sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Uh, today we're produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. Um, I'd like to introduce um, Alice Marcus Krieg, my friend and partner, who's going to talk about the thistle, that spiny, thorny, impetuous, invasive, protective thing. Um, and take it away, Alice. Okay. Thanks, Carm. Um, when you were wrapping up your fig talk, you were talking about youth. Um, and I found a similar sort of poem that I'd like to start my uh, thistle discussion about. It's from um, uh, a blog by a writer named Valentine Benair. The title is called Butterfly and Thistle. So it was written in January 2008, and it starts like this. It's very short. How humbly this butterfly treads a path like we do, the search for honey amid thorns. So the thistle is important to me for a few reasons, because it is so misunderstood. It is full of contradictions and dichotomies. Its use um, and beauty require an understanding and a reflection. So the, th- the search for honey amid thorns from the short poem I just read and the message in Carmen's poem is all about possibility. And that's why I like the thistle. That and my Scotch-Irish upbringing. Uh, The thistle represents opportunity to me. It protects itself, yet at the same time offers nourishment and sweetness. Birds and butterflies uh, benefit greatly from thistles. Things that take chances and fly, and dream of other places and of new lives and new landscapes in which to grow and seed themselves. So on the surface, the thistle is stereotyped as thorny and sticky and tenacious, all those words that that Carmen described, uh, wild, unkempt, everlasting, impetuous, nasty, invasive, and even nationalistic. This bulbous, thorny plant has seeded itself all over the world. The stems grow two feet high. They are slender and branched, scarcely able to keep upright under the weight of its leaves and flowers. It is always growing. I know how that feels. Its leaves are long and narrow with irregular teeth ending in spines. Ouch. (laughs) The flowers are either yellow, white, or pinkish purple, and they are housed in a prickly green head. But the entire plant, and this is what I like so much, is covered with a thin, soft, silky, protective down. That sounds beautiful. It sounds like a good British and an American gardener, seeding themselves, searching for new lands, settling um, or not settling, um, and not giving up. These are good gardeners. So the search for honey amid thorns is opportunity. And that will be my theme for today's discussion. So I'd like to start with a definition and a description of thistle. It was first found in Europe and in Asia. Um, It's very, very, very old. There's biblical um, uh, connotations. Uh, There are 14 species alone um, found in Great Britain and arranged under the botanical groups of Cardus, Carlina, Anoporden, 
Carbinia, and Cynesis. Thistle is the recognized symbol of neglect and untidiness. It is ironically found in good soil that is uncared for. Hmm. That's a dichotomy. It is a thorny nastiness found where good soil exists. And as gardeners, we spend hours ripping out thistle of our garden beds. We rip up our hands as we pull the weeds to plant other species, native species. The thistle is the symbol of work, strength, fight, and necessity. A lot of symbols there. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in in the Bible, um, in Genesis, the thistle is the symbol, another symbol, of the curse of man on earth. And the quote is, Thern... Uh, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. So this was really God's kind of wrath and punishment um, to Adam for eating the apple. At least he didn't have to cover himself with a thistle. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thistles have brought about extinction and the demise of many other plants on the American prairie in Canada, British Columbia, and Australia. I didn't know that. Again, where the Brits have conquered. (laughs) It was so terribly invasive that Britain, in a Parliament Act of 1597, states heavy penalties upon all those who neglect to destroy thistles on their land. Every man is being compelled to root out within 14 days any thistle that rears its head. So can you imagine the money and the energy that is spent to observe and report those who did not follow this rule? Could this be a, uh, you know, the first horticultural law of land, perhaps? Weed control? So they were forced to rip out weeds or they'd be punished. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So with this thistle, then, it seems that nations are now controlling what can and cannot live on its defined land. Hmm, We've heard that before. And nationalism is thus born. The thistle becomes a symbol of movement for people and nations to stay or to go. What cost is the effort to stay and cultivate these lands? Cultivate with the capital C, always restless, those humans and thistles. So what I love about the thistle is that you cannot really control it. It pops up somewhere year after year, just as you cannot really control anything dealing with nature. You learn to live with it, possibly benefit from it, or fight it. So in my opinion, better to embrace it, this human nature that is so nasty and sweet at the same time, uh, the honey amid the thorns, and the struggle that us humans exert in the search for such honey. So um, I want to talk for a second about the uh, nationalistic side of the thistle, the emblem of Scotland. So the story goes that it was a dark night in 1263, and the Vikings ruled the islands off the Scottish coast. King Hakian IV had a fleet of Viking ships off the coast of Largs on the western coast. No one is sure whether it was a deliberate invasion on behalf of the Vikings or a violent storm that drove the ships ashore, but in the middle of the night, the Vikings wound up on Scottish land. Scottish King Alexander III was tired of the Vikings and their raids and had manned uh, castles along the western coast with his soldiers. Some claim the Vikings went ashore only for their boats, and others say it was as a raid to conquer Scotland. As the Vikings came ashore, they were barefoot in the dark of the night. Legend says 
that as the Vikings crept along the shore in their bare feet, it was the thistle and her thorns that alerted the, sh- the soldiers to the company that was lurking about. So, um, so what you're saying is there's good and bad in the thistle. Absolutely. It has two sides. Um, the, f- the thistle is invasive, so please be careful about uh, how you plant it. Um, and if you wanted to do some things other than thistle to attract butterflies and, and, and the good um, insects and birds, you could plant uh, such friendly alternatives as butterfly weed, Asclepias, Joe Pie weed, Euptorium, um, Black Eyed Susan, Rudbeckia, and Wild Phlox. So in summation, I encourage you, the garden lover and listener, to embrace the negative qualities of the thistle and realize its positive thorny attributes. Always search for the honey amid the thorns. Make yourself some thistle tea, sit back, relax, make a fig tart, and read your seed catalogs. With thoughts of spring ahead and new gardens to cultivate, there's always a new landscape. So um, that's our show. And just wanted to um, say once again thank you to Heritage Radio Network, Roberta's Pizza, 261 Moore Street, sponsored by Hearst Ranch. show is produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. Now this music um, is... Uh, written by a great friend of ours, Paul Watling, SuperCompuGlobal. And if dot com. Dot com. <laughs> and if you'd like to hear an archive of the show, go to our um, heritageradionetwork.com. Thanks so much, and Thanks happy for listening. gardening. <laughs>